You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Our scripture reading this morning is from John 20, chapters 1 to 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, followed him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. Amen. Thanks, Lammy. Let me pray, and then let's spend some time reflecting on this passage. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, as we turn our attention now to reading this story, which people are reading this morning all over the world, and which has greatly shaped our world, We pray that you would give to us not just ears to hear, but minds to understand and hearts to believe that your son did indeed raise from the dead and that this changes everything. Speak to your church, Father, for we are here and we are listening. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of the most significant books, at least in the last uh, hundred years, or so says people smarter, much smarter than me, is Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolution. I don't know if anyone has got a chance to read this book or knows something of it. Thomas Kuhn is associated with MIT and Cambridge and Harvard. 
And he's developed a theory, or argued for a theory of change within the field of science. And what he argued is that science doesn't sort of progress linearly, uh, that we just sort of gather together knowledge and sort of grow in our field, that data point A doesn't collide with data point B, reaching conclusion C, then data point D is added, you know, reaching conclusion, conclusion E. But rather, science regularly has to go undergo periods of what he describes as a, revol a revolution, uh, periods in what he calls a paradigm shift. His argument is that what ends up happening in the world of science is that scientists are constantly confronted by data that seems new, and it's confusing, and they don't understand how it fits within the larger scheme of knowledge that we have. And over time, that data that conflicts and doesn't seem to make sense begins to grow and grow and grow, and we shake it off, and when theories don't fit perfectly, we ignore them, until it becomes so extreme we can no longer ignore the fact that the data doesn't fit our current theories. And from this, something like a revolution happens, a new paradigm is birthed out, and we're forced to reassess our old data. I think maybe to, to describe this in layperson's terms, and I think this is an important concept, um, I don't know if anyone has any associates or friends who believe something like that the earth is flat, but you'll know that it is very hard to argue and reason with these people. Maybe you've seen these videos on YouTube. Um, that The paradigm, they're kind of so entrenched in their way of thinking that it doesn't matter the fact that one data point doesn't fit within their model. They're not going to change their views overnight because they're so entrenched and committed to this view that the world, say, is flat. But over time, as they realize there's so much data coming at them, so many things that they can't possibly deny, they begin to uh, rethink the way in which they think. And the only way they can change after holding to a view like this is not to say that, okay, maybe the earth isn't flat, it's, it's partially rounded, you know? They have to undergo something like a revolution. They have to go undergo a paradigm shift. It feels almost, dare I say, like a conversion, where they acknowledge that the data doesn't fit anymore, they've been wrong. The earth is indeed something of a sphere. Listen, um, I don't know everyone that's here. It's, I, I'm, I'm happy to see uh, so many new faces, and we're glad that you've joined us for this Easter Sunday service. But we're looking at a story that's been read for some 2,000 years, and it's a story in which paradigms are being confronted, and paradigms have to shift. And whether you're here as someone who would say, I'm not associated with religion, I don't believe, I have no faith commitments, or you're someone who say, who can't remember an Easter Sunday in your life or you didn't dress up and come and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. I think this story is given to us in such a way that we need to see the ways in which the paradigms which we build up over time, and the paradigms, especially the paradigm of death, which we are born fully aware of, a paradigm even when we profess faith in Jesus Christ, we're reminded of as death and decay and conflict continue to pound us over and over again, a paradigm that sort of reduces us to despair in this passage is being shaken. Listen, the resurrection is a central claim of the Christian faith, okay? Uh, Christmas is very important for the Christian faith. God becoming a human being is extremely important. Good Friday, which we celebrated on Friday, his death on the cross, critical. But the sort of thread that ties it all together is the fact that God rose Jesus, raised his son Jesus from the dead, making all of his claims absolutely true making him the supreme authority in this world. And this Easter story is offering to us not just some sort of vague, wishful thinking, hope that our spirits and souls might indeed resurrect on the last day. No, this passage is telling us that the body that you currently are, the skin that you currently have that is you, 
This body can experience resurrection. And one man in the middle of history had it happen to him. And because of that, your paradigm has to be challenged. So here's what I want to look at this passage this morning. And I'll do my best to move somewhat quickly. I know there's some people here just for the donuts. But what I want to look at this morning is, (laughs) there are donuts afterwards too, I promise, Uh, that there's an old paradigm that that is confronted. Then I want to look at the paradigm shift we see in this passage. And finally, I want to look at the invitation that is extended to all. Now, if you've never heard this story and you're new to the Christian faith, you might think, well, I don't know anyone to have risen from the dead. And so I find this story to be a bit far-fetched and to be primitive and mythological. And you wonder, is it possible in, with the scientific advancements we've made, with the sort of mindset we have today, is it even possible for us to hold to something of this belief in the resurrection? Well, listen, I hope what you're seeing as you heard this passage read is you're seeing someone who has a paradigm just like you. I don't know how much work you've done in ancient history, but people also didn't rise from the dead with any regularity. There might be claims that their souls lifted up into the sky or something like this, but there were no bodily resurrections. This is a paradigm that is absolutely being confronted. And even in this story, in the way that John writes it, we see a paradigm confronted. Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb. It's probably dark. And she's going in the dark because she doesn't want to be seen. And here's, here's what's happening. The tombs were somewhat different. They're kind of cut into the side of hills or cliffs. Maybe a, a three-foot hole is made there, and a boulder would be rolled in, front of, rolled in front of the hole. And this boulder would be, in some senses, placed in front of the hole, but it would be opened back up again because families were often uh, buried together inside these graves. And so what Mary Magdalene is coming to do in the early morning is she wants to roll back the stone so that she could go in and anoint the body with spices so that the stench of decay doesn't overwhelm anyone who might come to pay tribute. And as she comes to the grave, she realizes that the stone has been removed. And we have every reason to believe at this point that she doesn't think, ah, the stone's removed. He must be resurrected. In fact, quite the opposite. It's more than likely that she assumes grave robbers have come, which would have been quite common. In fact, there's much Roman law written about how it's a capital offense to rob a grave. So she's frightened. The stone has been rolled away. She doesn't know where Jesus is, so she goes to get Peter, one of the disciples, and the disciple Jesus loved, which we have very good reason to believe is John, the author of this account that we are reading. John, who's probably younger, gets there first. I don't exactly know why he uh, has to rub it into Peter that he was able to outrun him, but he wanted that left in the permanent record. Uh, John gets to the grave first. He sees this linen cloth, but he waits for Peter. I don't know why he waits for Peter. There's some speculation that maybe he assumes this might be some kind of trap, that there was a plan hatched uh, to sort of catch these disciples at the grave, and then they also be crucified like Jesus because they were participants in this sort of insurrection. Eventually, Peter does arrive later, and in true fashion to Peter's character, he runs right into the grave And there he finds a grave cloth, a loincloth that would have sort of covered Jesus, and also the head cloth, which actually would have been wrapped around Jesus' head, actually to keep his jaw shut uh, as his body decayed and as people uh, came to mourn his loss. These cloths are not just thrown off, but they're actually nicely folded and placed on the bed. This is not a grave robbery, because these grave cloths would have been of significant value And if you robbed the grave, at the very least, you would have left with these cloths. In fact, these cloths are some kind of evidence that something greater has happened. 
But here's what I want you to see or think about as you re-look, let your eyes look at this passage again, is that no one knows what's happening at this time. Now, if you read the Gospels, you know Jesus makes hints that something special is going to happen after he dies. He makes hints that he's going to resurrect, but no one here is expecting a bodily resurrection. No one understands what is going on. These are the heroes of the faith. These are the people who will build the first church. How do they respond? Well, we read later in the story that they, they go home. They, not only do they go home, but they're so in fear of the authorities that they lock their doors. But one person doesn't. And she's hailed as something of a model of faith in this passage. Who is it? It's Mary. And what does she do? The rest go home in fear. What does she do? She stays at the grave and she's weeping. Why? Because she wants Jesus to resurrect? No. Because she wants the body. She wants to properly pay tribute to the dead and lifeless body. This is the only paradigm she has. Jesus is dead and she's grieved that someone has done something now with the body. What a horrible ending. But the only paradigm she has is to mourn the loss of Jesus, to mourn a dead body. John is writing his gospel to tell you that these disciples are not mindlessly buying into some theory of the resurrection. They are furiously reasoning and thinking at this time, and they haven't come to any conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead. They too were skeptical like you. They too did not know of anyone being, uh, having been raised from the dead. This is not part of their paradigm. There's a myth that circulated that has said that to be a Christian is just to uh, close your eyes and, and, and just to believe, just to, just to trust that these sorts of things happen, as though reason is detached and this stuff just kind of comes easy. It just comes simple for certain sort of people, that we're able to kind of ignore the data that other people aren't raising from the dead on a regular basis and somehow believe in this one case it is true. But John is telling us that it took a great deal of data to confront the paradigm of Mary and the disciples in this passage. A great deal of data had to come before them before their paradigm could be shifted, before they could believe. They were believing, when they come around to believe in the resurrection, they're not doing it in spite of reason. They're using reason at this point to say, there is no resurrection, there is an ending, and someone has stolen the body. What John wants you to see is that these early witnesses to Jesus' resurrection have had a reasoned engagement with the evidence. They had to look at the evidence, examine the evidence, and so also should you. You might say, okay, it's an interesting story. Here's the deal. I'd be happy to examine the evidence. In fact, it would be quite significant if I could find, you know, someone having resurrected from the grave, if I could find the coffin kind of pushed open and dug, someone dug their way out with all their nice grave clothes uh, nicely, you know, hung on, hung on, on um, what are those things we put in the closet? Anyway, <laughs> hangers. Glad people are listening. Um, <laughs> if I saw that, maybe then I too could believe in the resurrection. And I have some compassion for you about that. I understand. It, would, it seems, though, it would make more sense if, if everyone got a chance to have an eyewitness account. Then they could be held accountable for the data that they interact with. But let me maybe push back in a couple of ways. One of the first ways to push back is what we have before us is something of a historical account. And we have to believe something of historical accounts if we are going to deal with any data whatsoever. The world is dependent on historical accounts being well-reasoned so we can plan for the future. And one of the evidences we have that this story is very likely is the fact that the first witness to Jesus is Mary Magdalene. She actually doesn't have the greatest of reputation uh, in the Bible. Jesus it, elsewhere it says cast seven demons out of her. 
And yet, she is the one who's going to be the first witness in interaction with the resurrected Jesus. But if her mental well-being and her interaction with demons wasn't enough, she's also a woman. It goes without saying. But in the time that Jesus, in the time of the, uh, in the time in which this narrative is taking place, a woman's testimony was not even counted as legally admissible in court. In fact, one essay I read from a, a Cambridge scholar named Richard Bauckham, one of the leading scholars uh, on the Gospels, said uh, the, the whole essay was about how untrustworthy women's testimonies were compared to men at the time. And in this article, he goes to great lengths to show that it was such a patriarchal day that women not only couldn't even witness in court, but if they said something was true you know, against a man, it was just assumed that they had to be wrong. He quotes, actually, someone writing around the year 175 A.D., a Greek philosopher named Celsius, who's actually one of the first sort of major public intellectuals to try to pick apart Christianity and to say it's not true. And Celsius writes this, After death, he, that is Jesus, rose again and showed the marks of his punishment and how his hands had been pierced. But who saw this? A hysterical female, as you say, and perhaps some other one of those who were deluded by the same sorcery. His conclusion? No rational man could believe the testimony of a hysterical woman. Now, why share that? I share that this way. You, you and I both have a problem on your hands. If you reject Christianity or you, you hold to a traditional uh, Christian view of the resurrection, and the problem is this. Something happens after this particular event. And if your theory is that this is nothing more than a group of people who want to play a game of mind control, you know, sort of access the levers of power in society, and start a new religion so that they can control people. If that's your theory, you have a major problem. Why would they depend upon the testimony of a woman? Now, if you grew up in church, I know you've heard these arguments, but you do need to let these settle in. This is not the way for mass mind control. This is not how it works. The last thing you would do is to find a woman, especially Mary Magdalene. You would bury this part of the story, and you'd wait till Jesus appears to one of the men, and you would make sure that story is written very clearly. But it was recorded this way because it happened this way. At least I deeply am committed and, and, and convinced of, of the case. That's one evidence. Let me give you a second evidence to consider as it relates to the his, historical resurrection. Again, you know, I have some sympathy if you say, I wish I could see someone resurrected. Well, here's one of the, the advantages you have that you wouldn't have had you been there and saw the first resurrection. No matter what you say about Jesus' resurrection, you have a major problem. Because though other religions have, have been born and spread quickly, notably, say, Islam, but it spreads mostly through military might and a tremendous amount of, of funding, it is very rare for a religion in all of world history to start the way this religion starts and spread the way it spreads. The Bible says Jesus hangs around after the resurrection. He appears to some hundred or so eyewitnesses that see him. But by the fourth century, it's likely that a quarter to a half of all the population of the Roman Empire counts themselves to be followers of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know the sincerity of all of their hearts. I don't know what came to all this. But for the first 300 years of the Christian church, they have absolutely no cultural capital. They're made primarily of women and slaves. And for 300 years, without any access to the levers of power, in fact, by being publicly persecuted, this religion starts from the eyewitness account of this woman to a hundred others and spreads and dominates an empire in just 300 years. The Japanese Christian novelist 
Shusaku Indu has this great quote that you've heard me read before that explains the complexity of the resurrection. He says this, If we don't believe in the resurrection, we will be forced to believe that what did hit the disciples was some other amazing event, different in kind, yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. What's Mr. Indu's point? His point is this, and I find it to be a brilliant point. Something happened at the resurrection, and you've got to believe something somewhat crazy. You either have to believe Jesus did indeed raise from the dead, as is recorded in these scriptures and as the church has professed for 2,000 years, or you have to believe somehow, somehow this fairy tale story was able to take over an empire in some 300 years. No one's off the hook. There's not a lot of rash, there's, there's not a lot of sane ways to come from point A to point B. One of the advantages you have over the people who saw the grave is you have seen the impact of the resurrected Jesus in world history. And that is something to take seriously. I don't know if anyone knows the name Chuck Colson. He was kind of the evil genius and during the Nixon administration in the U.S. And he got caught up with, uh, with the Watergate scandal. He was Nixon's hitman. hitman. He eventually in Watergate gets arrested, and while he is in jail, someone lends him a copy or gives him a copy of Mere Christianity. He reads C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, and he converts to Christianity. And I, and I think what ends up happening is he actually doesn't even uh, plead the fifth uh, in his trial. He doesn't even defend himself. He actually just fully confesses all the crimes that he, d- he did and played a major role in uh, the, the scandal, the Watergate scandal unraveling. He writes this, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put into prison. They would not have endured that if this were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie together for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles can keep a lie together for 40 years? I find it absolutely impossible. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say this. Something happened. Something happened at that tomb. And world history wasn't the same. Based on the testimony that we have recorded here, based on the impact within world history, I think we have every reason to believe Jesus actually did raise from the grave, despite the fact that our paradigm has no room for it. And I believe that if you make a reasoned engagement with what is happening here at the grave, you have every reason to believe that Jesus did raise bodily. There's an amazing encounter. But even in these first characters, their paradigms weren't transformed just by the empty grave. Let's next look at how their paradigms are transformed. Where do we see that sort of in verses 11 through 18? Now, what you must understand is the paradigm that the Jewish people were working with in the days. Most Jews, not all, there's obviously always exceptions. A good historian will always put that asterisk. Most Jews believe the way that world history was going to roll out is that God had a plan for the total number of people. He knew exactly how many human beings needed to be born in this world. And he had a plan for, by which those human beings would enact and roll out his plan throughout the course of time like a scroll. But one day, that scroll would reach to the very end. We would hit the last page of the book. And on that last page of the book, God would break into the story. There'd be no more new human beings. All the human beings who had previously died would experience something like a resurrection, and they would stand before the judgment seat of the God who created this world. This was the general paradigm that existed in Judaism around the time. This is the paradigm that these first disciples and Mary have in their mind. 
But not one person had in their paradigm this idea that God in the middle of history just might resurrect one person. And that he just might look at the life of that one person and say, this one lived an honorable life. This was an upstanding person. This one lived a life that was pleasing to me. But that is exactly what we see happening in this passage. No one's paradigm had room for this. And this is where we see the paradigm shift. Mary has no categories. All she's looking for is a dead body. We see it in verse 12. She sees angels. I don't get to interact with a lot of angels, but I'd have you know that if I did interact with angels, I don't think I'd be asking him, where is the body? But she's so overwhelmed by emotion, so stuck in this old paradigm that she wants access to the body. They took my Lord. And in fact, when she sees the resurrected Jesus, she assumes this must be a gardener. Why? Because her paradigm has no room for a resurrection in the middle of history. It has no room for this. So she sees a person who looks like Jesus, and she assumes this must be the gardener. But what, how does the paradigm change? How is her paradigm transformed? Well, as much as I'd love to tell you that well-reasoned arguments made a case for it, the well-reasoned arguments only chipped away at the old paradigm and confused her. How is her paradigm transformed? How is the greatest news in the history of the world announced on earth? How is this the first person hear the story of Easter? My guess is this. If you wanted to make a, an announcement that the world will never be the same, the last way you would announce it would be like you see in this passage. Because what do we see? It's announced with something like a whisper. How does Jesus announce that he is resurrected from the dead to Mary? What does he say? He says, Mary. Mary, verse 16. And this bursts her paradigm. Just hearing her name from the resurrected Lord bursts her paradigm. He doesn't come onto the scene and say, royal proclamation from the God of the heavens and the earth I have undone the power of sin and death, and I have, been, I have raised one from the dead, Jesus. Here he is, and shine the spotlight. No, the announcement comes with this, Mary, Mary. And this is the moment when the data can no longer fit into her old paradigm. This is when she has her Copernican revolution, her Copernican revolution moment. She can't be honest with the data that is in front of her anymore. Everything now has to be reassessed because in the middle of history, God resurrected one man and declared him to be righteous. And in the same way, new life has to be hidden in the womb and slowly starting to churn and, and, and grow in a mother's womb until bursting into this world is new life screaming. So also Jesus is hidden in the womb of the earth, some three days, and seemingly out of nowhere, he comes bursting forth, introducing to our old world a new world. New life comes screaming, but it announces its arrival in a whisper. Mary. In the middle of history, God's power, which the Jewish people had always thought would come in full force at the end of history, when everybody was resurrected, the righteous going here, the wicked going there, God's power would break in and recreate the world and make a new and happy world for the righteous. He would eternally punish the wicked. In the middle of history, God's power to make all things new starts to birth and break into our world, and our paradigms can no longer stand it. We have to experience something like a paradigm shift. Listen, I don't know about you, but do you remember the first time you held an iPhone? I don't know if you got a chance to hold it really early, like before people got it, when it was just kind of starting. Like, did you not feel like something from the future, a power from the future had broken into the present? Email, you know, music, 
text messaging. I mean, you don't even have to text, you know, seven, four times to get to the letter T or whatever, right? This was, this was crazy. This was the future in the present. And in so, in so many ways, so also is what Mary is realizing is taking place now. God's future power to fix all things that would come after the resurrection. God has seen fit to dump an iPhone, you know, in the Stone Age. To take that power of the new creation and bring it into this creation so that we can live with the power of this creation in a world marred by death, decay, and despair. This is what this story is all about. What does this mean? It means that the power God would use in the future has broken into the present, and it means that there is now no more reason to lose hope. No more reason to lose hope. Why are you so deflated and hopeless and discouraged? Why do you think the goal of life is just pursuing comfort and pleasure and doing your best to make it to 70, 80, 90 years? This passage is telling us that there is a world to come, a world where there will be no more death, and we can taste it now, And by our relationship to the resurrected Jesus, we can participate in this power now. We can do this by restoring relationships that look hopelessly broken. We can do this by bringing justice, fighting for justice in a world where injustice flourishes. We can do this by announcing that friendship with God is available in Jesus Christ. There's no reason to live your life under the shadow and in war with your Creator. This is the good news of Easter. Mary's paradigm is burst. And as Jesus breaks into this world with his new creation power, how does he break in? He breaks in with a whisper saying, Mary, he doesn't come angry at you. He doesn't come disappointed that you didn't see it coming. He doesn't come frustrated for you that it's hard to come by. He comes and he announces your personal name. And he says, now the power of heaven is accessible. There's now something like a portal of heaven's glory that can be tasted and touched In this world, let me conclude our time by looking at the invitation that's extended to all. This is the way in which Mary's paradigm is transformed. She realizes the resurrection has happened in the middle of history. God's power is broken in. We now have an iPhone in the Stone Age, so everything can change. It's not just that Jesus died and rose from the dead, so our sins are forgiven, and we don't have to fear death, although that is certainly true. It's also that we get to live as people who've seen the other side of death. We can live as people who who realize there is nothing that can ultimately take us down. There is no difficult fight that we have before us which isn't worth our efforts. Because even should it take our life, we will only raise again with Jesus. We are people who can call and be united to Jesus Christ in all that we do, bringing goodness and flourishing to this world in hopes that our world now might look a glimpse more like the world that is to come. Is this not what we pray in the Lord's Prayer when we say, Thy kingdom come? on earth as it is in heaven. Let me end by looking at this invitation that is extended to all, and I will be brief. After extending this sort of radical personal invitation to Mary, saying Mary, calling her individually, Mary in verse 17 grabs hold of Jesus. She says, never again. I'm not going to let go. I, I don't want to be apart from you. And Jesus says, I must go. And we know from the rest of the Bible that he must go because he will, be, he will ascend into heaven. And when he's in heaven, sitting at God's right hand, governing over all the heavens and the earth, as the rightful ruler of heaven and earth, he will send his spirit down to this earth. And he will send his spirit so that each one of us might hear our names. And so that we don't have to cling on to Jesus physically at this time, but by faith, We can cling and lay hold of him as we hear him say our name, as we realize maybe he brought us here 
this Sunday morning for a reason, to hear this story. And as we by faith trust that what God did for Jesus can be for us as well as we're united to him, the Spirit comes upon us and that power of heaven comes inside of us and makes us into a people we can't believe we could become. And that is the hope of Easter. This is how the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. I hope you have the courage to look at the data, see the way it confronts your paradigm, and I hope, I'd hope you'd find yourself converted, experiencing something of a paradigm shift. You know why? Because Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Hallelujah. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for this Easter story. We thank you for the fact that when you looked on your earth and saw it falling to pieces, your creatures made in your image destroying one another and destroying the works of your hand, you didn't trash it, but you saw fit to send your son to enter into this world, to absorb the consequences of all of our behaviors, all of our sins, to give his life as a means of forgiveness for all these sins, and you saw fit for him to be resurrected in the middle of history so that we can be agents of resurrection in our workplaces, in our homes, and in our neighborhoods. Father, open our eyes to see the power of heaven that is broken into this earth to make all things new. Make us new even this morning so that we can make things new in our neighborhood. We can give hope to the hopeless. We can give justice to those who are victims of injustice. We can give peace to those who are at war with you. Make us agents of this gospel, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.